When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I look at Crazy Rich Asians as like a sci-fi movie, right? We have our big fantasy blockbuster movie. Our work is done. That's bullshit, right? But the power of representation is that Crazy Rich Asians open the door for more Asian American stories. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing is that we need more stories for people of color because those stories then fuel the narratives that help people get registered to vote. I've really started thinking a lot about representation. For little Asian kids like us growing up in the South, to see someone that looked like you on the screen, super important. Okay, I think we're past that moment where representation matters more now. Where Crazy Rich Asians and Black Panther wins appeal to mainstream audiences with something never mm. seen. I need the white person to see the Asian story. I need the Asian yeah. person to see the Black story. And so representation matters on a lot of fronts. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we want to feature a conversation with Keith Chow, founder of the Nerds of Color, on his podcast, Southern Fried Asian. Typically, stories about Asian Americans are centered on the experiences of those who grew up on the coast, New York, Southern California, the Bay Area, where large and diverse Asian American communities have lived and thrived for decades. On Southern Fried Asian, Keith takes a look at a part of the country that isn't typically associated with these stories and unpacks what it means to be Asian American in the American South. And as you know, I grew up in the great state of Alabama, so I was really interested to have a chat with Keith to compare notes. So enjoy my chat with Keith Chow on Southern Fried Asian. Welcome to Southern Fried Asian. I am Keith Chow. I am joined by an amazing dude. He is the co-host of the podcast Modern Minorities on the Potluck Podcast Network. He's also the co-host of the Quarantine Comics Podcast, and he's a super dope fellow. Please welcome to Southern Fried Asian, my man, Ramen Segal. Nice to meet you, Keith. Finally. I feel like stars it's have been a long time coming. Yeah. Long time coming. I, you know, and I think that might have been the first time I've been unironically called dope. So, like, <laughs> you're a you dope, just dude. Made my <laughs> dope dude. Dope uh, dude. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Yeah, man. And let me just preface the reason you're on the Southern Fried Asian podcast is something that I learned recently after talking to some mutuals is that, and I don't know why I learned this. You, you say this on the podcast. You're from Alabama. Born and raised. Born and raised. You're the perfect person for this podcast. You know, and it's usually my fun fact, like when you do an icebreaker at like a corporate <laughs> business meeting or something, or you go on a podcast, like, what's something about you no one knows? Although now it's, yeah, I mean, my mom and dad live in, <laughs> live in the great state of Alabama. So let's just get that out of the way. Yeah. Like, how did your family end up in Alabama? Yeah, I mean, I have to go a little further. I, I don't, and I do, but it's always fun to do it. So my parents um, are Indian American. 
but they're not like a lot of other Indian Americans in this country. So my dad was born in what is now Pakistan before partition. So that is like a lot of North Indians. Mm-hmm. Moved to Delhi as a little boy. After his father passed away, he left in in his late teens. So he came over to Canada first as an architect. And then, you know, school in the United States, worked as an architect in Detroit, but got a professorship at Tuskegee University, a historically black college in Alabama. Around the same time he was getting this job offer, he was writing his family back in India saying, hey, I think I'm ready to get married. I want to start meeting some people. So on the other side of the world in England, my mom was actually born in Uganda, Africa, and they fled to England as refugees because of Idi Amin, literally lived in England without their parents for a few years, her and her siblings. Wow. So by this point, I think her parents had just come up from Africa. They're writing back to India. We think our daughter is ready to start meeting people. So it was a quasi-arranged marriage. Mm -hmm. My parents don't like to talk about all the other people that they met. (laughs) But but I think they went on some dates in England or India. My sister and I are still getting the story straight out of them from that era. But they moved to Alabama because dad had this job. And he also had a co-practice as an architect in Montgomery, the capital. And my dad's dream was to design a house. He's an modern architect, urban designer. So he built a house that looks like a triangle. That, <laughs> <laughs> And that's where they, I mean, you know, they just started their life there. And, you know, we weren't, uh, there were only like 10, 15 Indian families um, at the time. Now there's hundreds. But uh, they were kind of founders of this, you know, Indian American community. Because a lot of the Indians in Alabama, there are pockets of them in all the little small towns, but they weren't in Montgomery. They were in Birmingham and Huntsville because mm-hmm. there's a lot bigger of bigger cities. Well, well, Montgomery is one of the big cities, but the industries there, I hate to say, aren't conducive to the kind of educated South Asians, um, the, the doctors and the engineers. In Birmingham, it's a lot of the medical community because of the university there. In Huntsville, the defense industry, a lot of engineers, much bigger Indian American community. In fact, some of my parents' best friends are there. But yeah, that's how we ended up there. And, you know, mom and dad are still there. Prior to the pandemic, I make it a point to go back every couple of years. My sister's in, in Florida. I have this weird relationship with the South is what I'd say. I'm I'm proud to be from there, but at the same time, I'm not going to live there. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing, right? Let's take it back a second, too. Because so growing up, I'm assuming you're, you're a child of the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Just like me. And And as you said, there weren't a lot of Indian families where you were growing up. What was it like being an Indian kid in Montgomery, Alabama in the 80s? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you guys have covered this theme on your show a lot, which is why I really I relate so hard to your show. It's, <laughs> it was like a secret identity, man. Mm. You know, a South Asian in the South, an Asian in the South, is the name of the game is assimilation. You want yeah. to fit in. You don't want to stand out. The reason I don't speak much Hindi or Punjabi versus my older sister who can understand a little is because I think my parents saw my sister having trouble with English. And that's a no-no. you got to fit in. You've got to fit in when you go outside. My mom was the auntie who would wear Western clothes to temple mm-hmm. because she was a teacher. You know, when you come to our house on the weekend, the smells of the Indian cooking for the week, the, the bhajans, the Indian religious songs were playing on like full blast on the stereo, but not outside of our house. You know, mm-hmm. it was like, and so I, I kind of wore two identities. We both are comic book geeks, so my gravitation to that world might have come from that. You know, I didn't have real Indian friends. There's a half Indian guy who I'm still very close with. You know, we became friends when we were eight. Another kid moved in to town from the north when we were 13. And the three of us did hang together quite a bit. But, and I regret to say, all three of us had a little bit of shame hanging together because we got bucketed together. So much so that we probably did some mean things to each other, even though we were, to this day, very, very close. And what's interesting is, 
there was a handful of other Asian kids, a couple of Thai guys, there's a couple of Taiwanese uh, guys, etc., and girls, that we would kind of hang out with because we were all kind of the Asians, but we didn't want to all sit at the lunch table together. But if we all happened to be in the same math class or the same German class, <laughs> we right. would hang together. But we were all trying to assimilate and have white friends and black friends. And yeah. um, it, it was really tricky. That's always the, the case of being Asian American, right? Like that, that whole liminal space between Asian and American, you know, in particular, like you mentioned that there weren't others, you know, because a lot of folks, at least who, who have their Asian American stories presented in the mainstream media, like most of those stories come from like Asian enclaves, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. what it's like going to, you know, dim sum on weekends or the boba shop or going to, you know, yeah. Chinese school, like all the stuff that was on Fresh Off the Boat, basically. Mm -hmm. No shade to Jeff Yang. <laughs> <laughs> but like for those of us who grew up in, in spaces where there are in a lot, I mean, the, the parts of Fresh Off the Boat I identified with was like when Eddie's hanging out with like all his non-Asian friends, right? Because there weren't yeah. any other Asian kids around. And, you know, really, really quick to jump in, the most authentic story of the Indian American experience is Never Have I Ever. Yeah, yeah. Because the main character, it is, it's not about the Indianness. There's the occasional, I have to go to Puja and I'm dressed up and I'm literally walking into my school gymnasium and, and no one's ever seen me dressed this way. Right, right, right. It's this hidden identity. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, like, you know, you mentioned, you know, my comics background, part of the inspiration for secret identities the book that i did with jeff and, and perry mm -hmm. shen and, and jerry ma was this notion of like being asian american in particular like a superman character i know that like he comes the, from like, the original creators, immigrant the original but immigrant. he was the original immigrant and not only that like gene yang's talked about this when he wrote superman like mm -hmm. he has the hyphenated name mm -hmm. of his heritage mm -hmm. that's that's that no one really knows how to pronounce correctly but he has to use this assimilated name when he's clark like, and in, cal clark and right. cal and, chi and what's interesting i've thought a lot about this East Asians versus South Asians, and I'm I am gonna draw a very broad stereotype. Sure. It's okay. Some of my best friends are Asian. <laughs> but let's just use Chinese and Indian specifically. It's so interesting that Chinese people have a lot of Chinese people, I should say, have a Western name and a Chinese name. Yeah. My my wife is Chinese American, so she has that. When I did a lot of work with China in a past professional career, you know, I'd meet someone, they'd be like, Oh, my name's Wendy Zhang. And I'm like, What's your real name? And they'd say, and I was like, Okay, Wendy, got it. <laughs> and where's Indians, on the other hand? You keep your names. We keep our names. Now, why is that? And I, I, I'm not an authority on this, but I've thought a lot about this. I think it's because we were colonized, more yeah. so. And so we all speak English. Or you go to India, you can get by on English, believe it or not. Like, it's, it's just a thing, especially in the North. And... I think as a result, that probably drives me, well, we'll just keep our name. It's fine. We, we speak English, learn to pronounce Javinder. You know, it's fine. Call me Joe <laughs> if you need to. But my name on paper is going to be Davinder. Call me Dave, etc. You know, I wonder, too, like why that is, particularly with like Chinese folks and, and less so now. Right. Like I think Chinese gen of a certain generation, because I think mm -hmm. like newer generation Chinese immigrants mm -hmm. keep their names like Vietnamese. Well, the ones coming kids. over now, the ones coming right, over now. That's what I'm yes, saying. Like yeah, more yeah. recent immigrants keep their name. Yeah, but yeah. like. I think there was that more of a pressure or, you know, desire for like the older generations when they were immigrating or coming over to like adopt a Western name. Mm -hmm. My family comes from Hong Kong, which is similarly colonized. And I think that was, mm -hmm. you know, unlike unlike what you, you were experiencing, like, I think the idea of like having the Chinese name plus the, the Western name on top. And I don't know if this is something that like my family did or it, it was I think it's somewhat typical of like at least Hong Kong Chinese is that. 
the English name that you choose is very similar to your Chinese name. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And my my English name was supposed to be Norman, which sounds closer to my Chinese name, Lokman. Mm-hmm. But then one of my mom's friends when she was pregnant was like, don't don't call him Norman. <laughs> I have a friend named Keith. Why don't you name him Keith? So that that became my name. But yeah, I, I, that is that's an observation I've never really paid a lot of attention to. That I, I think, and as as we gain consciousness, right, like in college and stuff, yeah. And I started meeting other Asian kids who kept their like Asian names or never had like a Western name, yeah. You know, it made me kind of like it was my Malcolm X moment. I'm like, call me Lockman. <laughs> like, call me Lock. Lock I, was my name for for like at least in college for around some certain people. I had a friend whose girlfriend did that. Like, she had a Western name that everyone knew her as, but then when she moved towns, she decided to adopt her Chinese name and hold on to it. It's, you know, the other thing that's interesting is, and I can say this more definitively for Southeast Asian cultures now, specifically India, the Philippines, and a few others, right? And I lived in Southeast Asia briefly, but it's this idea of the pet name in the Mm -hmm. family so you have your name your god-given name and then you have the name that you're called around the household i actually just read in china they did that as well so spirits and demons wouldn't know who you really were when your Mm -hmm. family called you that all the time and maybe because of that there's a really fantastic book that most indian most indian men of our age have read called the namesake by jumpa lahiri and i mean it's this definitive this guy has a pet name and he has a real name, but he doesn't right. want one and he wants the other. Just call me Nick. You know, all of this stuff. And it's it's a weird heritage play. Like, I don't know if you have kids, but I have two kids and my wife is Chinese American. I'm Indian American. And so it was important. How do we how do we thread that needle? And we were knew we weren't going to everyone in the grandparents that we're going to be unhappy with. But our kids have Western first names, Chinese mm. middle names and the Indian last name. Right, right. And do I feel a little bit of regret for that? Sure. But if my kid had an Indian first name, that's kind of robbing of the the Chinese heritage or vice versa. And our kid is American first, right? It's right, kind of like right. Robocop, half robot, half man, all cop, you know, like <laughs> yeah, half yeah. Indian, half Chinese, all American. My daughter's in the same situation. My wife is Japanese. I'm Chinese. And oh, she man. Has... How? Wow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, you know, and that's the thing that I think makes us Asian American, because you know there is this argument. You can you can get past all the the historical exactly because there is animosity. this argument. There is an argument that's out there in the ether right now because of a certain book by a certain writer for the New York Times. We won't say his name. Also, a Southern Asian. I kind of Jay, if you're listening, come on the podcast. I want to debate you. Wait, no, hang um, on. Say it. Say it for all of us that are ignorant, like Jay me. Caspian Kang. Okay, the writer, the... he's he's an opinion writer for the New York Times. Okay, and he wrote a book called The Loneliest Americans. And okay. His main premise is Asian podcasters. Uh. Yeah, well, I don't necessarily want to call him out, but like his main his main argument is that Asian American is a myth. Like, there's no mm. such thing as Asian American, right? And and the main reason is that, like we have nothing in common. What does what do I, a Chinese American from rural Virginia, have in mm. common with you, an Indian American from mm. rural Alabama, or not rural Alabama, but but, yeah. but like uh, from Montgomery, Alabama? Like, we have nothing in common because you're Indian and I'm Chinese. But the thing the thing is. I have more in common with you yeah. as an Asian American than I do with someone who's coming from China tomorrow. Well, and that that's the interesting thing because that's actually why my wife and I got along, right? It's mm-hmm. the I was never very much a pro-Asian person and I get into trouble having this conversation like our podcast do the potluck people know this? <laughs> no, they do. They do. I'm just playing. <laughs> I hope they do. Sorry Marvin, sorry. Sorry Phil. I I became more Asian with my Chinese American wife, not because we're like so steeped in our own hair. Like if you go right. listen to one of my podcasts, like we do a Diwali and a Chinese New Year episode, and the premise is my co-host Sharon and I, we don't know what the and she was Chinese American, we don't know what the f we're talking about. We're raising biracial kids, we're trying yeah. to connect to our heritage, but 
the thing that my wife and I connect more to, I told you my parents kind of refugee, kind of political migration mm-hmm. story. My wife's parents have the exact same thing. Her dad was in mainland China when the communists came to power and mm-hmm. fled to Hong Kong. Her mom, Chinese, was born in Jamaica when it got dangerous for Chinese people. They fled to Canada. like, mm-hmm. And so this kind of weird fit in, not fit in thing, that's what my wife and I have in common. I think at a more macro level, I do think that is what Asian Americans have in common. But like, I, I really do push back. We've made all the Asian American lists, or not as many as you guys have, but like we make those because we have two Asian faces on our podcast. But we are like proudly an American podcast about yeah. minority perspectives. Like, and I sometimes get worried when I'm like look, working with Sharon, my co-host. I'm like, oh man, we're talking to like way too many Asians. Like, let's talk to Black people. Let's talk to queer people. Let's talk to Muslims. Let's talk to blah blah. Like, I want. I, I feel. That I. You know, honestly, like maybe not Southern Fried Asian because that this podcast is specifically it's in the about name. the it's Asian in the American experience. Yeah. But yeah. like, as, you know, more broadly, the nerds of color, which is this podcast mm-hmm. is a part of. I definitely have the same issue. It's like you know, kind of. I don't want to say problematic, but I think it's it's to me it's concerning that I. The guy who came up with the Nerds of Color as a, mm-hmm. as a concept or as a website, you know, being Asian American, knowing that, like, Asian Americans do have a level of privilege when it comes to, like, I mean, that's why they had to create the BIPOC mm-hmm. acronym, right? So, like, I do think sometimes with the Nerds of Color, like, maybe we don't need to cover this Asian thing because it's well, going to get covered, right? Like, well, let's here's what's focus interesting. on, like, black stories or indigenous stories or Latinx stories. And, and here's what's wrote, so interesting. So my, my other podcast, Quarantine Comics, where my co-host is Chinese-American, Ryan, where it's literally a comic book book club. And at first it started out as, let's just read the greats, the stuff we love, or the, and we recommend stuff to each other. Like, he had never read Kingdom Come, but I it was one of my favorites by Mark Wade and Alex Ross. And as we started spreadsheeting it out, <laughs> I started noticing oh, wow, it's a bunch of Americans. God knows how much Grant Morrison and Alan Moore we've read. And they are the, <laughs> they are some of the greats. Right. But Marco Tomaki and Jean Lun Yang and Junji Ito are also great. Okay, so that's cool. But literally, we find ourselves, oh, my God, we have an American, British, Asian bias to comics. And mm-hmm. we're trying, we're literally trying to create that forcing function on ourselves to read more queer, Latinx, black created comic but it's hard because our instinct is like oh man i just want to read like teenage mutant ninja turtles by eastman lard i want to read savage right, right, dragon right. i want to yeah. read another gene lun yang comic book and our own biases come into the equation i guess is the point well and, and it didn't help that for generation right like there were like frank miller and alan moore and mm-hmm. mark wade those guys dominated comics right like you had to dig to find the Dwayne mcduffie comics or the mm-hmm. Uh, you know Dennis Cowan comics, mm-hmm. so like or the Christopher Priest comics. Like I mean, there are there are, there are great black comic stories out there, but they were they were not as celebrated as 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 the greats the way that Frank Miller, Alan Moore. Well, and it's not, it's not that those guys. I mean, I actually don't want to speak for all those guys because Warren Ellis hashtag Warren Ellis like ah, but uh, <laughs> but they're part of a system. And I yeah. think this is something yeah, yeah. I've learned so much. I've, I've always known this, but intrinsically through the call it the free therapy conversations of my podcast, systemic bias is a thing, be, be it in climate change, race, civil rights. Like we need to have this groundswell from the ground up. But as there's an author that you should actually have on this show, Anjali Jetty, who is based in Georgia, she's a political activist and an author. And she's like, look, as an artist, it's great for me to write and to do representation and all that stuff. But it's actually more valuable for me to go get more people registered to vote, to right. drive systemic change. We had a climate activist, Molly Kawahara, who's Japanese-American, 
And she's like, it's all great that you want to green your life. Go compost, blah, blah, blah. But that's literally the man saying it's on you. No, it's actually on you to go register someone and to push for legislation to change these things. Right. Like, if, if we don't change the systems, all the, like, individual action, all the podcasts that we launch aren't going to do shit. That's true. But I also think that it's a both and, especially when it comes to, like, the limits of representation in, in, in pop culture, particularly. Like, and that's something that, like, you know, Asians get pilloried for a lot too is that our main focus which i i kind of agree with sometimes like Mm -hmm. our main focus is like how many crazy rich asians can we get and less how many people can we register you know and i do think but but at the same time i I want to throw some shade at crazy rich asians i don't think that show that movie helped with our stereotypes i think the better movie of that year was always be my maybe (laughs) right right what you you, but it was the cultural phenomenon right well well, but, but one was like in all seriousness like one was this like grandiose stereotype kind of Black Panther kind of movie, right? Crazy Rich Asians. Of like, look at all this stuff. Ah, right, right, you know, right. versus this other one was and you talked about this like about Riz Ahmed, right? Like but like whereas always be my maybe it's just about two people in love that happen to be Asian. And yeah, their yeah, journey yeah. of and like the more realistic the Minari uh, the more realistic grounded story that's a both versus it's all Wakanda all the time and I'm not but saying think, you can't but, have but that. at the same time like and my pushback on your yeah. pushback as a crazy rich <laughs> defender because like there's fewer and fewer of us as 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 time you know it goes on is that I look at crazy rich as like a sci-fi movie, right? It was a <laughs> it was it was a fantasy. It was a film like of that scope has never fair, fair. shown Asian people who spoke English, right? Mm-hmm. Like that was never that kind of movie. And that's, that's, but either way, like my point though, is that like that there was a limit to that represent. If that's like, okay, we've made it. We have our big fantasy blockbuster movie. Our work is done. That's bullshit. Right. But the power of representation is that crazy rich Asians, open the door for more Asian American stories. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing is that we need more diverse Asian American stories. The more there are not just Asian American stories for people of color, because th- those stories then fuel yeah. the narratives that help people get registered to vote. Do you we know would, what I'm saying? Yeah, that's fair. Culture is a mover. And to be clear, we wouldn't have had Shang-Chi if we didn't have Black Panther. If, right. And, and to be clear, you needed, and I've read a lot of Bob Iger interviews and stuff, he had to push really hard because it was the Henry Ford thing. You know, if we gave the customer what they wanted, they just get a faster horse. So it's yeah, this yeah, idea yeah. of like, we do have to move the ball. And here's what's interesting. when I've really started thinking a lot about representation. Okay, for little Asian kids like us growing up in the South, it was to see someone that looked like you on the screen, super important. Okay, I think we're past that moment. My mm-hmm. kids. They're used to it. She's got mirror royal detected. Where representation matters more now, like so much more now. And this is like this. I'll bring it back to like my own Southern guilt. But it is important that my daughter goes and does a Chinese New Year program for Chinese New Year's at her school, where I think there's like one black kid, one Hispanic kid, and it's a bunch of other white kids. And so all of the non-Asian people understand that there is a thing. Like representation, Matt, and this is where Crazy Rich Asians and Black Panther wins, appeal to mainstream audiences with something never mm. seen. I need the white person to see the Asian story. I need the Asian yeah. person to see the black story. And that's the thing. I mean, and no shade to always be my maybe, but like we've had those movies for a mm-hmm. long time. Yeah. Like there, you mentioned the namesake, like the Cal Penn movie from like ten years ago, right? They've been there, they, but they've been there for like these small niche audience who went to see, you know, Better Luck Tomorrow. Who went mm-hmm. to see the namesake? Mm-hmm. It was like the Asian us. audiences. Well, yeah, those movies are for us. Those are for us. Those are for us, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But like, but Crazy Rich was for everyone. And, and when Crazy Rich does well. And Netflix buys the rights to it, and they show the Asian people, they'll show the other stuff in the algorithm. So I think you still, like, 
and because I do think you need sound of metal. Like I do think Yeah, absolutely. So representation matters on a lot of fronts. And I guess I guess there's a place for both. I think this is where you're right. Yeah, that was my point. And, yeah. and my thing is always both and. Like I never, I always hate the like the the, the choice, the dichotomy. It's like yeah. either you push for representation or you're pushing for you know political progress. And I feel like it's they're all of the same piece because mm-hmm. as as a guy who's like makes his you know bones in nerd culture, we get this a lot. Like you know, what does it matter if you see more black superheroes if black kids are still getting shot by the police? Mm-hmm. Right. But, you know, if you if you really break it down, like why why are police shooting black people other than the fact that they're all fucking racist pigs? That's one. But the reason that there are so many racist fucking pigs is that they've been fed a story for years. Well, so the running joke on modern minorities is it's not a running joke. Like if I had to shortcut why we do that show, we're here to solve racism. <laughs> like, yeah, good to job. be clear. We're failing. You're doing such a good job. Yeah, we're done. <laughs> no, but my fundamental thesis and this actually comes back to a little bit of my own Southern guilt, right? Like, put my money where my mouth is. But greater empathy and understanding. Yeah. If that cop had a black friend. I'm not saying... It's not, oh, <laughs> some of my best friends are black. But no, if if you literally understood and had greater empathy and understanding for other people's... So, modern minorities, we designed the show. Our, our target audience isn't Asians. Right. You know, I'm sorry. I don't... Say, sorry, potluck. Sorry, yeah, buddy. Yeah. Like, I don't care if Asians listen to my show... Unless they're listening to the episode with a black person or a right. queer person. We're designing our show for Karen. Our show, our design target, we're marketers by trade. Like, And the people who write us are those people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I need, uh, we, it's designed for your majority ears because we all have, you and I are both men. We're both straight men. Even though mm-hmm. Muslim is becoming a majority, but not in America. Like we are non-Muslims in this country. Those are things that we really need to internalize just like a white guy needs to internalize the black experience, the Asian experience, etc. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. And you know, just going back to that cop, he didn't even need to have a black friend. But you know, I think about what that the cop who shot Mike Brown said. Like, mm-hmm. what, you know, the reason I had to shoot him, even though he had his hands up, he's like he, he was coming at me. He was like this monstrous figure coming at me, mm-hmm. and it was like, was it in re- reality or was it in your head? Because exactly. like, and what is in your what is in your head has been conditioned to be there for generations, right? Like the 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 the, the notion of the you know, monstrous uh, subhuman black man. Or right? the suspicion of the brown guy that must be a terrorist. Exactly. Or, or when, when you hear Arabic, when you hear Arabic, does hair on the back it's, of your neck it's tingle? It's shorthand or do, for like, yeah, here a bombing's about to happen. Or, right? or like, do you hear, wow, that's a really beautiful sounding language. Just go back to January 6th. I mean, it's it's tropey by this point, but mm-hmm. like had 20, what the, the, the commission just said it was like 2,500 people were in the capital on January. Imagine if that was twenty five hundred Arab people. Well, let me let me let me flip that. So I, I want to flip it on myself, and I do want I have to come back to my own Southern bias for your show. But like, here's my bias, dude. When I I I'm, I, I swear this is true, and I'm sorry, America. When I see someone in a red hat, I get a little scared. When I see a truck drive by with an American flag on a stick waving behind it, like I I actually do get scared because I have yeah. had encounters with racism, like in assault and like. Those things scare me, but not all people wearing red hats. And I'm, I'm not specifically just generic red hats. No, not... trust me. I'm a Chicago Bulls fan. Yeah. And trust me, I was looking for like a, a hat over the summer and like half the Bulls hats are red. And I'm like, fuck, I can't buy a red Bulls hat. Right, and that sucks. Like that, that <laughs> totally sucks that I have been conditioned to that. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story and then I will get to Southern Guilt. Like <laughs> I love the Fantastic Four. I have a Fantastic Four t-shirt. It's one of my favorite nerd shirts. I would like wear it to like industry conferences when I was like a corporate guy because I'd wear it over a blazer because 
invariably uh, it was like secret code it was on the superman shirt it wasn't a batman shirt it was a four well what's the four for i don't know is that your company logo but the other nerd across the room would be like and literally i met my one of my favorite black nerd friends keith like he was like johnny storm and that was the foundation (laughs) of our friendship i wore that t-shirt to china I was going to say, my like, in-laws. A, you can't, you can't. My in-laws, was, my in-laws were not happy with uh, their yeah. son-in-law. When you married into a Chinese family, you can no longer like the Fantastic Four. And you have to get four more of them and be the Fantastic Eight. <laughs> no, Otherwise. okay. Southern guilt. I have to come back to this. Yeah, yeah. I knew from an early age I wanted to leave the South. It just had some bad experiences. I won't get into them on this show. Like, listen no, to my other all, show. All the shows that get into them, though. <laughs> it's, it, therapy, it's, the, it's the slow burn of therapy <laughs> on my other podcast. It comes up with every guest. But I knew I had to leave. And you know what's funny is my cadre of like academically performing people, again, boy, girl, white, brown, black, whatever, all of us knew like, eh, it's the South, you know, better opportunity outside. And so people were going to New York, D.C., overseas, California. We're all popping off and kind of leaving the Southeast, escaping what we call the Bermuda Triangle of Atlanta, Nashville, Birmingham, kind of where if if you're smart, you go to those probably. Mm -hmm. And so we all left. A lot of us did. Like 80% of us left. And, you know, a lot of us reconvened over the years. Like, I'd meet up with friends in D.C., I'd meet up with friends in Dubai, I'd meet up with friends in San Francisco. Then 10 to 20 years pass, and we all start having kids. The white, straight ones are all moving back into the Golden Triangle. Because, you know, as you get older, you want to be close to your parents, your family, your support network. You want your kids to know their grandparents. Those of us that are BIPOC or queer... We're not going back. Mm -hmm. And I struggle with that because I understand why I'm not going back. I don't want my kids to experience some of the things. And even though Alabama is different than it was, it's still kind of like I see it more. I see it more now for what it is when I go home. Back then I was a fish living in water and I didn't know I was in water. And now I go back and I see things like, Mom, Dad, that just happened. Really? Or I pay attention to the headlines on AL.com and stuff like that. But if I would were to go back. I would be part of the solution. I would well, be that's, normalizing. My my vote matters more in Alabama than it I does up here. I was going to say, I mean, this is something that I that I talk about a lot on this podcast, too, is that there is, and, you know, for, for good reason, right? Like, there is a sense that we should just abandon the South, mm-hmm. you know, for, for the trauma it's inflicted on, not just us, but, like, people of color writ large. Mm-hmm. But at the It'll same time... It'll never change. It'll never change if we yeah, don't. Yeah, it won't change. So we just, fuck it, let the... Let the politicians who run the that part of the country just keep power. And but to your point, if more of us reclaim <laughs> reclaim the South, that's a loaded <laughs> loaded concept. <laughs> but if, if those of those who look like us mm-hmm. and and of darker shades were to go back, and and not even go back, there are there are huge populations of Black people who are still in the South and Asians that, and Asians and and, and and right, that's the whole this show, right? And and like the leaving of the South, or even. Not even leaving it physically, but leaving it emotionally and mentally. What well, does it say to the folks who are still there? That's, right? you know, like, it's, I've, li- I've left it physically, to be clear. I've told my parents we're not moving down there. During the pandemic, I'm like, I, literally, this is where politics like gets a little scary. Like, perceptions on the pandemic and safety. I have an older sister. She is a physician, and she lives in Florida. And she has two half black. She's married to a black man. Two half, my nephew and niece are half black. Or they're black passing, to be clear. And we are of similar, like, kind of progressive ideals. And she's a physician, to be clear. Mm-hmm. But she's living in the sentiment of the pandemic in the South. She doesn't necessarily even agree with some of the craziness that's going on. But literally, her family's practices and what they're doing in the pandemic are informed by the culture of Florida versus kind of <laughs> right. the culture of the Northeast. Like, we're a little more paranoid and scared here. Maybe it's because we got hit really hard at the beginning. But it's so interesting how an environment can change you when you live in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the set, like, I didn't know some of the racism I was experiencing, the passive racism. Never mind the overt racism, but when I was living in it. And that's, 
is it made me a better person now that I sit on the outside of it and I can look at it and I can study it and talk about it and therapy myself on shows like this and my own? Like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, but it also, but it also kind of like assumes, and I'm not saying this is your reasoning, mm. but it also assumes that like places like New York don't have racism, yeah. right? Like it's just a problem of Alabama or Georgia or Tennessee. You know what I'm saying? Like, but when you look at like all of the quote unquote Asian hate over the last two years, where's all that shit happening? San Francisco. New York. Well, it's right? it's a number it's a numbers thing. Well, it's a numbers thing, but but racism is not the sole domain of the ab- South. Absolutely. Ab- ab- the know? thing I would say the South has is we wear the racism. It's a special. It's in the air. It's on our sleeve down there, and we have different ways of confronting it. it there's it's a little bit more under the surface up here and in the yeah. But you know, David 100%. Cross, the comedian, has a really great bit from his double album of back in the early two thousands where he's like he's talking about the redneck accent right and he's like that thing exists everywhere it's like i'm from bozeman montana and it's it's i'm from albany new york like right, right, to be right. clear it's it's an urban rural thing however yeah, yeah. however yeah. in the states where the urban population is super magnified pockets like atlanta this is why georgia will flip because of atlanta to be clear mm-hmm. obviously new york city san francisco austin dallas when you have high population bases in those states that's enough to tilt the favor of the state to and i hate to say blue progressive policies but that that, you look at an electoral map based on populations because of these population centers as birmingham and this is where gerrymandering i think the supreme court just struck some stuff down with alabama and gerrymandering but they've literally drawn the district there's like one black congressional district in alabama six congressional districts because they've drawn the lines around it even though the black population is so pervasive so that's how you even get around this population shift. And th- so coming back to it's a yes and this is where systemic change, like we have to solve these problems. Otherwise, the soon to be minority will be kind of pushing down on our now black and brown majority. That's why I think it's so important to lead these fights in states like Alabama, Georgia. Yes, yes. You know, Mississippi, because there is a sentiment, I think, in a lot of Democratic, you know, we'll just, you know, I, I'm not I'm not necessarily a fan of the Democrats just because of like how they just like to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> but but part of that is because, you know, one of the things that I admire about the Obama strategy and even, you know, Stacey. Stacey it was a, it was a 50 um, state Abrams, strategy, 50 yeah. state. Like we got We got to go everywhere. We can't just bank votes in California and New York and just think we got, you know, win the popular vote and move on. Like we got to we got to compete in Alabama. Like the fact that we competed in Georgia, to your point, mm-hmm. that Georgia flipped. I, maybe part of this is my optimism at being a, a Virginian of, uh, mm-hmm. at heart, even though I don't live in Virginia. I only moved north how the, of How'd that governor's election go for you, buddy? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, Terry McAuliffe was a fucking the, 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 the God, the, the black woman who was primarying him, man. Oh, she, if she was our candidate. She would have ignited the party. Like, yeah, exactly. And when that's the thing, like we, we like to play it safe, right? We like to. Even, even, Ob- even Obama, even Obama, like well, even Obama. But like, during, during the, no, but during the primaries, People are like, we don't want that guy. Right, right. Right, for right, whatever right. reason, but because he wasn't the safe bet. Exactly. But he energized He energized, exactly. He, and not just the party, he energized the country, he energized people. And say what you want about his like actual policies sure. once he became president, but sure. like... And you know, I remember, you remember 2008. Mm-hmm. I remember, t- like, there was, a, there was a sense of hope, you know, <laughs> to well, coin a phrase. Well, well, two things happened. Like, you, ha- you had uh, people in the middle, even right-leaning people in the middle. And again, Trump pulled those guys too. But you also had political sideliners, myself mm-hmm. and a number of other people, like, who all of a sudden became activated and dropped what they were right. doing. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, she had already moved to New York. So we were doing distance, and I had a lot more free time. So I started knocking on doors in Hamilton County, Ohio. And mm-hmm. here's what's interesting, coming back to activation, something... I learned 
from someone you've got to have on your show, Anjali Anjetti, this author and political activist in Georgia. The Southeast has the second largest concentration of Asians versus the West Coast. Yeah. So it's this, I don't want to say it's a silent majority, but like, it's an active population. And I mean, activate the Asian American vote in Georgia and you win. That's what happened, right? That's what happened in yeah. 2020. You know, you activate the Asian American vote. And, and part of the mission statement of this podcast is to like, show the world, right? To your point, who who is the audience? The audience mm. is everyone who didn't know that there were Asians in the South, basically, right? The, mm. the fact that you said, you know, the fact that you're from Alabama used to just be like a little my party fun trick. Fact, my fun fact, yeah. <laughs> Your one fun fact. But like, this is the mission statement of this podcast is like, hey, we're here and we're all over. We're everywhere. Like, one thing I've learned doing this podcast, so many like prominent Asian Americans in media and tech and business have roots in the South, you mm. know, like, and, and that's something that as, you know, you probably felt growing up alone i felt growing up alone mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. we must be the only ones like i joke oftentimes if you go to wikipedia and look up Larray, virginia where i'm from which mm -hmm. which it was a town the, no po one's the heard population's of. gone down <laughs> yeah yeah exactly it's a town no one's heard of until recently when the lady threatened to shoot up a school if they had to wear masks now my hometown's all over the news but until then no one knew where Larray, virginia was mm -hmm. but if you go to the wikipedia page and look up like demographics of the 1980s it says like asian 0.01 percent that was your family. That's my whole family. That's yeah. my whole family. <laughs> but anyway, before we let you go, we end every episode on a food memory that you have yeah. from Alabama because both being Asian yeah. and being Southern, if there's one thing that ties both of those identities together is food. Mm -hmm. Is there a dish that no matter where you are in the world, whether you're in Dubai or in New York or San Francisco, will always bring you back to Montgomery, Alabama? This is a tricky one. I mean, here's one thing. I admire, I think, so many of our Asian podcasts. Like, we have a question about mom dish at the end of our show. <laughs> Asians love food. We, we love it our just, food. Yeah, and then when you're Southern on top of it, it just... I mean, food is love. Food is culture, you know? So, yes, but I want to kind of leave it through. So, my mom's chana patura. Patura is a fried flatbread with spices. Chana is a spicy chickpeas. And it's my mom's favorite dish. It's honestly even, she doesn't make it as much because it's a production to make it. You will smell <laughs> up your house when you make it. So more often than not, she comes up and she makes chicken curry for me or something. And you can get that at the restaurant. Very rarely can you get good chana patura at a restaurant. Sometimes I actually have to go to South Indian restaurants because they have the big fryers that they make the dosa in. But but a very specific memory that like the power of this dish, one, it's fried, so Southern. Yeah, there you go. My late uncle, he passed away from cancer years ago, but at the beginning of his cancer, he, he was living in California, but there was a specialist, a cancer specialist in New Orleans. And this is my mom's younger brother, my pretty much godfather growing up. Uncle Joe, short for Jawar, Jawar Nehru, but Uncle Joe. So Uncle Joe was really scared about this surgery. And so his big sister, my mom, at the time, my grandparents from England were with my mom. They all drove down from Alabama to New Orleans. I flew down from Cincinnati where I was living for the surgery. And his kids were there and everything. And, you know, Joe was scared. He thought it might be his last meal, you know, before he had to start fasting for the surgery. And he asked my mom if she would make her chana patura, because my mom Aww. makes ace chana patura, just like my grandma does. And they were staying at, you know, one of those extended stay sweet things, everyone, we were all staying at yeah, those. Yeah, yeah. And my mom brings, like, the hot plate, the big wok to fry the things in, smells <laughs> in up the, the hotel. Smells <laughs> up the entire hotel. It was such, like, I, that smell, to the same, when I walk into, like, Sarana Bhavan, a place in Murray Hill, an Indian place, like that South Indian place that makes it, but when I smell chana patura, whether I'm in Singapore, New York City, an auntie's house, like, I'm taken back not just to growing up eating it on the weekends, but, like, that memory. It's, like, 
it's such a beautiful dish and it's gonna smell up your damn house <laughs> and it's so worth it so yeah my mom's china patura i mean the best dishes take over the whole home like that's what that's what they do yeah. it doesn't smell it up it just takes it over <laughs> we are yeah, it's, a, it's an unwelcome house guest for the next few weeks <laughs> <laughs> you just have to plan it and, and, and time it just right yeah well, Ramen, this is, I mean, I wish we had more time. I would love to talk to you more. Maybe I can come on your podcast. I, Here's I, me pitching. I've got, I've got two or three of them. So yeah, man. <laughs> Speaking of that podcast, how can people who are listening to this one find that and you online? Yeah, I, I tend to be a little bit of a ghost on the internet. It's ironic given the podcast. So visit, if you want to check out Modern Minorities, where we're solving racism every week, modmypod.com. If you want to geek out with my comic book book club, Quarantine Comics, QTD Comics, Com. And if you want to hear a pretty interesting business podcast, check out pgalums.com slash podcast. Awesome. Robin, thank you again for being on this show and, and just having such a great conversation. We will definitely check your many shows out in the future and uh, hope you'll come back. Absolutely. And I hope it's the first of many conversations, my friend. You can follow me on Twitter at the real chow, the underscore real underscore chow. And on Instagram at Real Keith Chow. Follow the podcast at Southern Fried Asians on Instagram and at Southern Asians on Twitter. Subscribe and download on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere you get podcasts. Find it all at hardknockmedia.com slash Southern Fried Asian. As always, the podcast has been co-produced by Jess Vu. And until next time, keep it Southern Fried, y'all. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. 